This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Snehal Patel, CEO and co-founder on the story of my doc and his perspectives on the state of digital healthcare companies in Asia. Hi, Sneha. Hi, Brian. How are you? Good. How have you been? I've been well. Where are you now based in? I'm based in Singapore. Since our last conversation, we're introducing you to the angel investor. So today, I'm talking to Sneha Patel co-founder and CEO of MyDoc. And it's a very interesting company because I think in Asia, we rarely talk about the industry of digital health. I think the, the healthcare industry is actually booming across Asia. I see, we see a lot of innovation in terms of insurance and fintech, but I think the health industry is probably of one that's interest to us. So Sneha, thanks for coming on the show. But before I start, I want to get to know you better. How do you start your career? So I started my career actually in the US where I was, which is I guess home. I was born and raised in the United States and uh, went to medical school. So I actually started off my career trying, I was going to be a physician to practicing doctor. And then I got really excited by the potential of the business side of, of medicine and, and bringing some of the interesting things that we're doing on a, as an operator out to the masses. How do you eventually end up in setting up my doc? Yes, the arc of my career. So I started off, as I said, as a, as a physician in New York and Boston. I was initially going to be a general surgeon, but then I kind of got diverted realizing that a health policy or a business was what's more interesting to me. I actually then moved into a sort of a banking mergers and acquisitions role. I was actually working as a lawyer, but where I was advising on large biotech transactions, which was really interesting because at the time, that was something that was just starting off. A lot of the big pharma companies companies were, at least in the Northeast, were looking to acquire startups, essentially one molecule startups, spinoffs from MIT, Harvard, you know, that sort of, that were promising that could potentially turn into drugs or medical or some sort of therapeutic device. So after having done about four years of experience, understanding the deal side of things, I really got a better look at, because some of the companies, I was representing the big pharma companies, but some of the guys that we were acquiring were startups. So then I, you know, made my next leap, which was, Huh, I would really be interested in either being an investor in the startup ecosystem or maybe an entrepreneur. The first thing that came to mind, sort of being from that business side, was VC. It got tied up with a couple of things. I ended up signing, sort of applying, and got accepted into a, a venture capital leadership program called the Coffin Fellows Program, of which now there's several alumni in Singapore. But along that journey, got connected to a family office based in Singapore as well that was interested in actually building out from scratch a healthcare strategy. And this was around 2008, and you know things weren't so great in, in New York, to be honest, the beginning of the crisis. So we made the choice, like, you know, I had a couple of offers to stick around in the U.S., but even to, to see how Asia was going to be in terms of in terms of healthcare. I ended up spending four years at the fund. I was sort of the, the, the managing director for the healthcare side of the, of the, of the operation and ended up setting up uh, several different investments as well as uh, actually building out some of the initial companies that we started with. So that's sort of been the arc. And so I went from essentially a practitioner to a deal guy to then being more on the finance side, 
And then after four years of doing that, uh, it was an interesting role. It's worth noting that the family office I was working with, we were an investor, so we were a VC slash private equity outfit. But our founder was very, very entrepreneurially minded. Like he set up his fund sort of by himself. And so he encouraged us to go into the field, as he called it, in, in, in the markets we were active in. So we're based in Singapore, but we invested in India, Bangladesh, Indonesia, Vietnam, Philippines, to really look on the ground to see what the big trends were in healthcare. And that's sort of where, you know, so we ended up setting up a couple of operations that would roll up brick and mortar primary care chains, along with diagnostic facilities, pharmacy operators, because it started becoming clear to, to me and our team that one of the things that was really, so the big gap that we were seeing was a huge fragmentation in the ability for people to get basic care. So you'd see folks, whether they're in Manila or in Jakarta, in Hyderabad, lining up to go from one point of care to another, but having no sort of system to coordinate that care providing proviso, which was really struck as an as a ex-doctor or ex-practicing doctor, struck me as odd because in a hospital, you have a very different mo- model, right? Because as a patient, you're, you're in the hospital, the care teams come to you because you're stationary, you're in a, in a room. So you see a specialist, a GP, a nurse, and they're all talking, they're all sharing notes, they're all they're sort of collaborating on your care. When you flip the model, and particularly in markets, especially emerging Asia, there was no coordination of care. You were sort of left to your own devices. So, you know, we set up a couple of brick and mortar operations that would bring together some of those functions under one roof. You know, three or four years after building some of those operations, which became you know, fairly successful, in my mind, I was, it started to occur to me, well, you know, it's one thing to sort of do it the sort of the old tech way, which is put everything together, but you still have brick and mortar, it's CapEx, it's pretty expensive. Is there a way that technology, which was just emerging, this is about 2011, 2012, could actually serve as a far more effective way to bring together the services that consumers need, especially in the outpatient space outside the hospital where you know your pharmacy may not be next to your, your clinic and your lab may be you know, another several kilometers away. And so that's really the, the genesis of where the MyDoc story began. It was really sort of saying, look, you know, we're seeing a real need because, you know, a lot of patients that should be getting care, and that, now this is being sort of, it's a much bigger deal now, in, at least in Singapore, with the war on diabetes. But at the end of the day, a lot of these things that are happening that we're seeing comes down to the fact that we're not great at preventative care. We're not great at sort of managing that care. And I would, and my, in our thesis at MyDoc is that the reason for that it's not that people don't care or people are just can't be bothered. It's actually because it's a little too inconvenient for users to get access to a, and confusing, to get access to an integrated sort of care model that works for them. But that's, that's basically in the background. So that's sort of a long explanation, but, you know, sort of explains why, you know, that you know, the evolution from what we saw happening in, in sort of in the brick and mortar space. And I think the logical next step would be using technology to be a much faster, cheaper, more effective way to bring together those uh, those core services. You have a pretty interesting background because you are a doctor, you became a deal maker, and now you are an entrepreneur. So in your career journey so far, what are the interesting lessons learned? I think, well, it's, I'm going to be echoing a bit of what I said with regards to the MyDoc model. But, you know, we are, this is part of the way the world works, right? We're very good at being specialists. And I don't mean specialists in the medical sense, but specialists in what we do. You know, we get our big degrees and we end up focusing on one specific area. 
But what's really being lost, I believe, and I think at the big detriment to a lot, and this is part of the, the benefit of had sort of having, in some cases, some, or some may see as a schizophrenic approach toward career, but to me, it's been actually fantastic, amazing because being able to bring the insights uh, together from very different vantage points of a very complex problem, which is health and healthcare, has been a huge gift. And so I would say that you know, you know, not having enough collaboration, not having the ability for you know, you know, various members of this ecosystem of health to actually kind of see the, the shared problem from different eyes, right? I mean, I think if we were able to do that, you know, we would be able to come up with solutions pretty quickly to some of these vexing problems. Which comes to the main topic of the day. I want to talk about my dog and of course the concept of digital health in Asia. So I want to start off going back because I think you have really related the backstory to how you come to working on the idea on my dog. Can you Tell us what's your current mission and vision of the company, My Dog, and what does it do? Yeah, I mean, we sum it up in our tagline from our, our logo, which is simplify healthcare. Now, that's a, it's, it, you know, that can be content free if we don't explain it. But the idea really is that if I can, I think success to us is a user who's using our platform who says, look, you know what? I have saved X amount of time, and X amount of pain, and I've been able to get to a better outcome. So what does that mean? It means that as opposed to having to ping pong around different care providers, it's all being laid out for them. You know, being able to essentially use a virtual hand to guide them through the, the care pathway. So, you know, it's sort of going back to what I said earlier, you know, the vision has always been consistent. You know, we, we did, I mean, to be clear, and I think we were told this at the beginning, what we were trying to do was pretty audacious and pretty, you know, pretty out there. You know, we had a lot of naysayers saying, hey, you know what? It's hard enough to be able to get one part of the ecosystem to work. What gives you the right to think that you're going to be able to get multi-billion dollar companies that are focusing solely on one part of the vertical to actually connect. And I think that to us has been the, the key value driver. And, you know, I think five years into the journey, which, you know, has not necessarily been direct and easy at the times, I, I feel like we're in a great place now. I mean, we've been able to actually sort of, ver- uh, sort of validate some of those, push the naysayers away and show that with our client list and their growing sort of uh, reach that we've been able to do exactly that and stitching together what is sometimes a very confusing and fragmented uh, ecosystem. I met both your co-founder, Vaz, and yourself a couple of years back. And I think at that point in time, it was still in the process of product development. And then how do you actually assemble the team and subsequently build to today the products and services of today? You Can you share that story as well? Yeah, well, great question. I think oftentimes uh, I feel like the, the, the story of the team building is actually sometimes lost in, in some of these discussions. So I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, I believe what we, you know, our, the, the team building journey is then, you know, Voss, so Voss is my co-founder. He is, uh, I think, a great compliment to me. And uniquely, I believe, in the space, we're both physicians. So he's a medical doctor licensed in Singapore. I, I'm only licensed in the U.S., but we came together because we believe in this, this shared vision. And I think we've seen it from different angles. I come, as you, as I sort of explained, from more dual background, sort of that the, the finance side. Voss comes from actually an entrepreneurial side and more on the tech side. So he has he's a serial entrepreneur who started a tech teleradiology program or company way back before it was something that's now become quite routine because he saw the potential of these type of technologies to move things forward. So. You know, the two of us, when we got together, said, look, you know, we, we share this vision, let's just sort of execute. And then since then, you know, the way that we've built our team has been 
to find like-minded individuals, either in, you know, channels come from all sorts, from, from headhunters to just, you know, actual direct inquiries from folks that we think would, that would be, you know, really useful for, for this journey. And, you know, I think that's, you know, we, I wouldn't say we've solved the, solved it. I think in any startup, there's always questions of how do we continue to grow the company and keep culture in a way we want it. But I think we've done a pretty good job with regards to that. And then, you know, I think you also asked about the, the actual company and maybe our focus. So yeah, we have, I wouldn't say pivoted. I mean, I think the vision has always been the same, but I believe when we first connected, the vision was actually far more, it was still about this idea of connectivity, but the platform was more structured around secure messaging and secure communications. So how do we make sure that at that time, and remember this is five years ago when you know, WhatsApp was barely really taking off. It was clearly not used for uh, professional purposes. And, you know, even I would say, at least in this part of the world, healthcare-focused secure messaging products were just non-existent. We saw a clear pain point and we, we actually did a couple of projects where we saw, you know, actually, if we can we can drive collaboration, forget about connecting the, the big vision, but step one would be just let's get the doctors and specialists to talk together. We can get them to communicate then we can go with phase two and phase three, which is bringing everyone else into that loop. We had some great success there. I mean, we had a, a clinical paper that was actually run and published. It's on our website that sort of showed the, the benefits of us running a sort of pilot of this sort of model at the uh, NUH school in the, in the orthopedic department. That was interesting. But, you know, that's when, you know, the realities of what you've built kind of smack, you know, hit in the head when it comes to what is a business case? I think we realized early on that, you know, focusing on the provider market alone, despite our unique advantages in that market, given the fact that we're both physicians, would probably not end up in a company that would have this level of impact that we set out to be. So we realized that, you know what, this is interesting. It's great that we've been able to validate it, but we should probably accelerate our getting the, the larger pools of patients into the platform and, you know, let this, this is still very much the core of the technology platform, but building out how we are going to bring large numbers of users onto, onto our base, which is not going to be all providers, it will be the patients that have to utilize the service. So that's where we started after having done, I think this was around our seed, seed round, right after our seed round closed, to start to really push heavily in the direction that we now currently are active in, which is bringing in large insurers and, and corporates to use the service with the sort of trade-off of both user uh, you know, sort of efficiency, productivity gains, as well as re- de- decreasing the cost of care. So can you tell me about the current products and services that are actually used by customers for my dog? Yes. Um, so what we, I mean, from the customer journey, all the way from onboarding to sort of the, you know, the last piece, we really are stitching together this, what we call a integrated care journey for the user. The current sort of large use numbers, uh, you know, in the corporate space, we, we've really worked hard and gained a lot of traction with corporate health screenings. Now, we found this to be a very interesting place to play. And this is probably the first project that we embarked on after we decided to move faster into the you know, sort of patient space and leaving behind just pure secure messaging. You know, the data was pretty interesting. So we would speak to folks at companies, even, even getting some data from some government agencies, and realized, you know, as an American, this was actually shocking to me, right? So in the U.S., you, until very recently, which I find, find interesting, where the U.S. Is, is following Asia, there was no systematized model to help drive, you know, annual screens. Growing up, yeah, you would have health insurance that would cover a, what they call in the U.S. a physical, but in terms of actually creating a simple method by which 
large numbers of employees could actually go through a screening with the, with the object of getting preventative care, it didn't exist. What I found, what struck me immediately living here was that actually, this is something that not only is being practiced and, and sort of managed relatively well, it's almost one of those things that's become ingrained in the way that people sort of manage care within the corporate landscape. So for example, the data that we have, something like 1 million, 1.1 million plus Singaporeans went through a health screening, which is a lab result-based screening on an annual basis in, last, in the last year. That's a staggering number. And what was, so you connect that with what we found was the massive opportunity, which if you ask, okay, that's great, you're getting all this data. What are people doing with it? Are they doing anything with it? And that's where, you know, sort of my mouth dropped open. It was like, Apparently, the numbers of people who are following up post a screening is very low. And it depends on who you ask, but anywhere between 10 to 30% of folks with an abnormal result will actually do anything with that number. Now, in my mind, that's a glaring symbol of an opportunity. You know, and that's where the hypothesis kind of gets, or the thesis gets challenged, saying, okay, if you know that people are willing to go through a screening exercise, which is not necessarily all that comfortable. I mean, people may, st- you're sticking a needle in your arm to draw blood, but even, and then, you know, two weeks later or whatever it is, you get a result which shows a, an abnormality and they're still not actually doing what's logically the next, which, is, which we would expect them to do, which is go seek help. Then there must be an issue. Now, our thesis has always been the complexity of being able to connect point A to point B has been the reason why you have a failure in being able to see this patient for the journey. So we said, well, what if we were to do something very simple? We would automate the process of gathering the lab results. We would then connect the users using our platform on, on, the, on the application online to then be able to connect with a provider. So the idea is like we're going to cut out this, the, the places where we expect you know, leakage or you know, the loss of users to, to happen, which would be the physical step of having to take a printed out piece of paper to a clinic where you have to queue for 30 minutes for a doctor to say, oh, you have, a, you have a problem. We'll make it much simpler. It's literally, you get a result, the notification pops up on your smartphone, you click a button, you can have a quick consult. Uh, with the, in the back of our mind, with the data that's been sort of in, from the US, that you know, something like patients who, are, who get in front of a doctor to bring up a, an abnormal result of some sort are 90% more likely to then actually take the step of managing that, that condition. The idea is how do I just get this person to get in front of a doctor? And we've been we've had a lot of success doing that. When we first launched, immediately we were get we were seeing almost sixty percent of our users take that next step, which is actually start speaking to provider. And now our numbers are somewhere around eighty five percent. So I think this is part of the reason that we've now had over a hundred corporates come onto our platform to help manage this particular part of the customer journey or the or for their employees. Which comes to my next point, right? Who are the actual customers of my dog. I think the other question that comes to my mind is how does my dog provide cost-efficient and quality health care for the customer? Yes, the two targets are the, the customers that we work with are insurance companies and with corporates. They Essentially, it's just one product, right? It is my dog and it has multiple features within it. But it, what's, sort of shaped, what's sort of developed up till now has been that amongst the corporate set, health screening and health screening follow-up has been a very utilized part of our platform. With the insurers, the health screening part is starting to, starting to kick off. Part of that's also because historically they've not wanted to do it, you know, sort of with the idea that what you don't know doesn't hurt you. 
<laughs> and now they're realizing that's not, it's actually the opposite around what you don't know will hurt you. And so what, but the insurers tend to use us more as a, as a teleconsultation product with the, with the, the assumption and the, the prompt, you know, the expectation that a lot of the initial complaints that, that patients may have are basic issues that can be alleviated with a, with a online consult, um, as opposed to having them send, you know, do the far more expensive option of actually going into a clinic to be given basic information. So sort of like a triage function. I think on both sides, we've been able to, to show enough, en- enough value where um, all our clients are continuing to expand their use with us. So the revenue model that comes with this by working with corporates is more subs- subscription-based model. Yes, I would say that that's probably it's subscription based across the board because I mean it's it is you know whether you want to call it SaaS or PaaS or you know whatever the acronym of the day is it's it's one of the it's essentially the idea is that we provide all of this bundled together. Uh, it is worthwhile pointing out though that another it's sort of distinct difference between us and other sort of online digital platforms is that we spend a lot of time and frankly money making sure that the operational side of what we do is actually up to scratch. And what I mean by that is clinically, I don't see that, and I don't think that any there's been any evidence of this, that a, a suitable option is to simply provide a, a video consult app to a bunch of doctors then allow them to sort of provide that service. Um, all the data that we've been looking at, um, you know, we're now, I think we're one of the only companies in Singapore that are, that's actually a member of the American Telemedicine Association, which is probably the most developed across collaborative body in the space has proven the fact that just like anything else, in order for a a teleconsultation to occur properly, it requires a tremendous amount of training in terms of the way that even providers, doctors who are well-skilled at being able to manage, they need to understand a new medium by which to provide proper care. We've seen this in our NPS scores and how we track some success metrics. So that's it's worth, uh, I flag it because we do have a whole team dedicated to training managing SLAs, managing the way that our op- the, the, the providers on our network will operate, because we really do believe that without doing that piece, the technology itself is, it's frankly, it can be commoditized, right? And that's sort of, I think, another reason why we're getting the sort of success we're getting. So what's your current coverage for my dog? I think in terms of expanding off Singapore? So we're active in Singapore and Hong Kong in terms of we have offices and, and actual people located in both markets. We also do have a business development member in Malaysia and in Sri Lanka that are looking after, in Malaysia, we're expanding into that market. And in Sri Lanka, we have a, a pre-existing relationship with a very large MNC there that's using our product to help sort of scale it in that market. Yeah, further afield, we have, through our last round, we have uh, some close links with large organizations in India and also China. So we're looking at those markets to continue to grow our, our presence and, and you know, getting our services out further afield. So what are investors on my dog at the moment then? So we have, um, I mean, from an institutional perspective, two large uh, or two companies came in our A round. So Wavemaker Partners, which I'm sure you're familiar with, you know, Paul Sanchez and the team, that have been fantastic supporters of what we're doing and also have helped us. And then a company that led the round is named by UST Global. They're actually a US-based technology firm that has really deep relationships across the world. They have 17,000 employees, so much, much bigger than us, but they've also been fantastic at being able to sort of showcase our product to markets that would have taken us a lot longer to get into. So it's been a pretty beneficial relationship, I think, for two reasons. One is, from a funding perspective, it's been great, but I think getting the go-to-market of a large established player that has clients that they currently work with that are perfect for what we want to expand into, 
And then secondly, you know, you know, there's always a question when you're when you're working in the enterprise space. If you're a startup and you're selling to to businesses, you know, customers are always going to wonder, well, that's great, you have this great product, they're going to be around. And I think with the UST investment um, and the fact that we are sort of working very, sort of very closely with them, that sort of concern has really dropped off. I want to come to the second part of the topic that we want to discuss, which is the digital health industry. I know this is probably pretty common now in the US. There are a lot of people talking about this space. I think it started out with ZocDoc, with doctor appointments booking, and then subsequently there's also Oscar, which actually focuses a lot on the integrating with the Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act and so many others forms. So my question to you is, how do you define the digital health industry in Asia and how do you see this industry moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I think there's been a lot of really interesting activity in the space. And I would say that, you know, to some extent we laugh, but we are kind of the grandfathers of the space. When we started, it was there was probably very few companies that were actually in the digital health space, at least in Asia, that we knew of. And now there's a ton of companies that are popping up, which I think is great. It shows, shows that the market is, ma- is maturing and that there are you know, customers for these services. I mean, I, I think we cast a wide net, right? I mean, when you, you ask the question, how do you define it? I, from my perspective, it's really any company that is using technology in some, you know, in, in some significant way to help manage a part of the, the healthcare ecosystem. So, and that ranges from everything from, you know, being able to more conveniently book an appointment with a, with a provider to managing the data that's coming at you from 10 different directions, you know, using algorithms to help sort of to, to manage that to disease management. So I think it's a pretty wide net. We say this over and over again, that the market's so large, there's so many problems that there are tons of ways that a lot of startups should be collaborating to help solve what, what we see as a systemic issue. It's not you know, isolated to one specific aspect of uh, the ecosystem. Do you see the digital health industry works a lot more closer with insurance in Asia? I would say, you know, interestingly enough, like, so, you know, if you look at the actual numbers, you would, you would not think that that would make sense. And the reason being is that in Asia, primarily in this, you know, Singapore and Hong Kong are outliers to some extent, but, you know, markets, we're still an emerging market class, right? So the vast majority of healthcare, if on a, on a per, on a, I think per capita basis is still fee for service pay out of pocket. And markets like India, Bangladesh that are now just emerging, traditionally, it's, there's been no insurance and insurance penetration is actually quite low. That said, you know, the reason we love that space and we why, and that's in contrast to places like the US or Europe where either you have single payer government insurance or you have a very large private healthcare market that's managed by private insurance companies. That being said, one of the reasons, and you know, I get the question that's kind of connected to yours, you know, well, okay, well, if that's the case, why am I as an American building a company in Asia when I should go to the US and, you know, have a much richer market? I, I think the answer is really that it's a tremendously greenfield opportunity here. You have the demand for what we're building and what's what's needed is no different as these markets become richer and more advanced than you would see in the US or in the Europe. The reason why insurers make a lot of sense, despite the fact that they are a smaller percentage of the, the payers than they are in other markets, is that they feel the pain points acutely. If you're an insurance company and you're working in the corporate space, it doesn't sort of matter whether you're in Singapore or London or New York, you're going to have the same sort of issues. And the issues are, you know, costs are going up. And you're trying to make sure you keep your corporate customers happy. You can you can continue to raise your premiums 15% year on year, but that's certainly not making them happy. So what can you do to help you know sort of manage that cost pressure at the same time not do things that you know we experience in the U.S. 
which are, you know, creating gatekeepers with HMOs and such, you know, and it's funny, the more conversations we have in this region, it's literally a no-go area because I think the customer experience was so poor that, you know, that the large insurers quickly realized this is really a bad idea. So I think that's where we come in, right? And we are able to say, look, the, the holy grail, so to speak, would be a service that provides a better experience to your users than baseline. So they're happier, you know, just more, more comfortable. That's one. Second, saves your ultimate payers. Remember, you're, the clients using it may be the employees, but the employers are the ones that are actually writing the checks. Saves your, your clients money, which is point two. At the same time, finally, increasing clinical and overall outcomes, which is meaning that you know, if we can sort of make a dent in the prevalence of diabetes and other sort of conditions, then we've done a great thing. Now, that, those, are, those are pretty lofty goals in terms of being able to achieve even one of them that, that requires, requires a, lot of, you know, a lot of money and a lot of success. But you know, I think that our view is that actually they are, they are self-reinforcing. If I can motivate, and it's engagement, if I motivate individual users to use a product that I know is cheaper than the baseline, and cheaper using all sorts of economic calculations, not just dollar for dollar, but a loss of productivity, time spent waiting, et cetera. And then that's going to translate into overall customer happiness because, you know, end of the day, one of the challenges that healthcare has as opposed to other parts of this, uh, sort of the, the electronic sector, the e-economy, is that healthcare is a negative good, right? People, and I'm not sure if, if that's economic, it's an economic term and, and they're defined as such, but what I mean by that is that folks do not think about healthcare unless they are sick, in which case their demand curve is completely inelastic. They'll pay whatever money is required to get better. However, when they're healthy, it's completely elastic. I'd rather take that extra dollar and spend it on, you know, saving for the next iPhone. Why would I want to save for health insurance? And that's like, like a structural issue that people have with anything in health. And I think the, the way to really sort of start to tackle that is you have to provide sort of incentives and a, and a model that alleviates the pain saying, hey, I know you don't want to think about it, but this is super easy. If you do this, you'll go through this whole process. It's almost painless. And hey, if you get on the other side, you might be better off doing it, right? And so I think that's sort of where a lot of the, the ecosystem and, and sort of the, the multifactorial nature of health has to come, to come together. So I think for me, I have actually watched a couple of companies, companies like yours, companies like DocDoc, who pivoted from a Zogdoc model to a medical tourism model. And recently, I think there is an Uber-like model, which is the homage where they deal with what I call a recurring healthcare. That means the recurring care, that means they need to have chronological illness and they need services that can help them. So coming to the Asian market, what are the major trends of digital health industry? I think it's really, they're starting value-based care. I mean, that's a sort of almost a term of art now in the US, but it's going to affect everyone, right? I mean, the, the old, old days where doctors could just sort of charge fee for service and, and be happy with that, I don't think that that works. And I think the data is very clear that you have to create a system where, okay, all these different sort of moving pieces have to equate into better outcomes and lower costs. I think that's the big trend. And it's that's something that the U.S. has started to really understand and has, has pushed forward. And it will be translated in its unique languages. And I don't mean that literally, but, you know, in terms of cultural needs, et cetera, and in the markets that we're active in. So I think the trend really is in that. And if you use that as a lens to look at new startups, I think that's a pretty effective way to, to be able to gauge whether these guys, whether this particular company is going to actually make a dent, i.e. succeed, or are they sort of moving on a path that's not necessarily going to, to yield, yield some, some great benefit. 
So does digital health companies like yours face major challenges from healthcare re- regulatory bodies? To be honest, and one of the things that I mean, there's a lot of things we love about Singapore. Um, I think it's uh, the regulatory agencies here um, are fantastic. And I think they're in um, health in particular, right? It's an evolving area. And I know given the sort of push for NEHR, there's going to be even more. Um, we've, we, we work closely. We've had multiple chats with you know, the powers that be in the healthcare and the, the regulatory side. And, you know, they've asked us point blank, what do you think about it? And, I, you know, my answer is very clear. I would welcome regulation. I think regulation is a good thing. And especially if it's Singapore-style regulation, because it'll undoubtedly be very well thought through and it'll encourage innovation without, but also protect the users, which is, I think, the goal. It's not, it's nothing beyond that. So, you know, regulation is good. I mean, health is always particularly tricky, right? I mean, it's people's lives you're dealing with. It's not something that you can just be way too cavalier about. On the other hand, you do need to give and keep space for innovation to occur. And, uh, you know, I think that that is something that is that, that this country excels at. And, you know, case in point, you know, as we expand outside of Singapore, we've now been using some of the guidelines that have been published by the powers that be here to help with the, the agencies and the, the regulators and other markets. And I think Singapore has done a, an incredible job of, of not, I don't think it's pure branding and marketing. But I think by providing, by showing that you can have high quality and high innovation, that these other regulatory bodies take it very seriously. They'll say, oh, this is, the, this is what the Ministry of Health has said about this. Huh, okay, this is actually pretty interesting, and it's a good place to start our, our own internal deliber- deliberations on this particular topic. So, Sneha, thank you very much for coming on the show and talk about your company and also the digital healthcare space in Asia. I think they're still evolving. So in closing, I have two questions for you. The first one, can you recommend a book or movie or podcast or anything which recently made an impact to your work and personal life? I think you've probably heard this a lot from entrepreneurs, but I would say that Horowitz's The Hard Thing About Hard Things, it's a fantastic book, especially if you're an entrepreneur. You know, the journey is not easy and it's, you know, what I love about that book is now it's coming from what arguably is one of the, the top VCs in the, in the world. And, you know, this is a, the experience of an entrepreneur who, you know, almost lost it all multiple times, right? So it's a great, I think it's a great book. It's humbling on the other hand, but it also provides, you know, it, it provides real, I think it's great enough for us to say, oh, it's, it'll be okay and resilience and all that. That's not really all that helpful when you're in the trenches and, you know, you, you feel, you see the meteor coming at you at hundred miles an hour. But I think that book has some really specific insights that can help uh, an aspiring entrepreneur sort of uh, to help take it to the next level. And then I think more broadly speaking, I think it's just, you know, it's, it's a tough road in, in, a, in terms of being, uh, being in a space, particularly like even health tech, where it's not, you don't have an immediate, there's not immediate validation. You, you can be working on a product that will take a year to, to see really any real traction. It's, it's in, you know, the typical sort of the rules of A-B testing, and it, it's, they don't really apply that well in health because the, the, the lead cycles are too long and it just takes time, it takes time to get data. So I think that type of stuff, being able to sort of reassure yourself that you're on the right path can be very helpful um, and, and just stay the, stay the course. Or, you know, as, as you, I think you just pointed out, you know, know when the, the signs are pointing, look, look we got to pivot. This is not going to be the end-all be-all. And so make, being smart about that and saying, look, this is, we're, we're being smart. We're, we're not being emotional about it. That's, it's not even cutting losses. It's more just, hey, this is the way health works, and this is. Re- we've, I think that now that we've done this, we wouldn't have not. We would not have known that this particular opportunity existed, but for the fact that we went. We went down a, a different alley, which didn't really yield what we wanted to yield. 
And that's okay. Those, those are, you know, as my old boss used to call school fees, you know, you pay those fees whenever you're building any kind of company. So. So the book is written by Ben Horowitz from Edison Horowitz. So my last question to you is, how do my audience find you? Please visit us on our website. So our website is www.mydoc.com. We have a lot of interesting information on, on the site and you know, we'd love to connect. We also have, uh, you can also search for us on LinkedIn um, and Facebook, where we both where we have uh, pretty active uh, blogs and, and, and information sharing. So you know, please you know, love your audience. Any questions they may have, we'd love to, love to entertain them. How about yourself? A LinkedIn account or Twitter? Yeah, LinkedIn is perfect for me. Um, that's where I think I, I probably spend most of my time these days uh, when it comes to outreach, etc. You can find me at Bernard Leung or at BernardLeung.com. Subscribe to us at iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast. Tune in and of course, Google Play in the US market. Tweet to me and give us your best feedback. And of course, give us a five-star rating in iTunes or a little star in Overcast. So once again, Sneha, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Bernard. Really appreciate it.